no matter what your thoughts on these matters are, we're all going to be coming in contact and context of our aging and death and mortality. Even in the new year, some of you may have lost loved ones or a serious illness has come near. Or maybe just something common has happened to make you stop and think, hey, death surrounds us. Just this weekend in my house, I have a fish tank and everybody sees it when they walk in my house and I woke up and one of the tissues Fish is floating on top, an upside-down way, not the right way. The fish had died, and so it's on display that death has entered this house, and we all have to deal with it. We all have to think it through. And the good news is that in the book of Luke, where we're at, Jesus will answer the most foundational questions about dying and living and living forever. He's got something for you here. He wants you to know that God wants you to have life eternal. And it can be only found in Jesus Christ. And you might think, hey, I already know this, right? I've been a believer. I've read the Bible. I get that. But think about this. God, who rules over all, knows that you know this. And even still, he brought you here to your seat today. Because he wants you to hear this. And he wants you to grab something. He's got something he wants to show about himself and about you through his word as we read through the text today. And so we'll start in verse 18. And here Luke's going to lay down three events from Jesus' life pop, 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 in the text. And the idea is that they all fit together. And he's trying to teach us about eternal life as he arranges this text for us. He's going to teach us the foundational truths. Everything else stems from these truths in the text. I'm going to read a big chunk, 18 down to 30, and then we'll talk about it. Okay, Luke 18, 18. And a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is a good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And so the man says, All these I have kept from my youth. And so Jesus, when he heard this, he says to the guy, Well, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. That's eternal life, and also come and follow me. Verse 23, when the guy hears these things, he becomes very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he becomes sad, says this, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26. So those who heard it said, well then who can be saved? But Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so Peter says, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wives or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal 
life. We could talk all day about this passage, but I just want to point out a few things here. First, I want you to see that eternal life is given, not gained. Eternal life is given, not gained. It's crucial to see this because I really believe God wants to expose something in you today through this text. Look at the man's attitude when he arrives to Jesus. It's interesting the way he frames this question, right? If you were walking up to Jesus and you wanted to talk to him about eternal life, living forever, defeating death, how would you phrase the question? Look at how he phrases the question. Verse 18, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a weird way to say it, isn't it? How can I inherit eternal life? It's not so weird, though. If you're a rich ruler and you're used to inheriting everything, right, to the extent that you feel as if you deserve it. Lots of people got their wealth in the ancient world through inheritance. The very next chapter, chapter 19, we see a king, a nobleman, who's going to receive an entire kingdom to himself. Previously in Luke, we heard about the prodigal son who went to daddy and he said, give me my my inheritance now. I'm do this, give it to me so I can spend it. There seems to be an attitude of deserving that this man brings before God. As he approaches God, he thinks he deserves something. In other words, he might say, what steps can I take to get what's rightfully mine anyway? Which is eternal life. But Jesus answered him, verse 19. It might seem a little strange the way he answered him. Look what he says. He said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, Jesus is saying, only God is truly righteous. So if you're going to understand eternal life, you need to know only God is good, which means when you come to the conversation, you bring no goodness. You bring no righteousness. You think you do, which is why you feel you deserve something. But Jesus is actually saying, no, only God is is good. And this will be critical in our understanding that eternal life must be given and not gained. When you come to God, you deserve nothing. Two Saturdays ago, I was with my family and it was early and I thought to myself, I'm going to create a wonderful teaching parenting moment where I'm going to display the grace of God to my kids. I have six kids. And I thought, what can I do to teach them that God is really good and awesome and that he gives them things they don't deserve? I thought, I'm going to make them breakfast, okay? It's Saturday morning, so wake up. And I set about the process of making Belgium waffles, right? And so I make these things. Problem is, six kids one waffle maker. I got a single. So it's a lot of pour, wait, takes a while. The next one, pour, wait. As I'm pouring and waiting, I'm thinking, how can I make this so enjoyable for my kids? And it comes to me, sugar. Eh? Make it sweet. If it doesn't kill them, they'll love it. So I add some more sugar to it. Ends up taking like cake batter. When they come out, I top it with fresh fruit, which is sweet. Then I sprinkle some powdered sugar on top, right? Put it on the table, 
buy some real maple syrup. All right. I'm going to call them all in. They come and they sit down. And then I hear a voice. I won't mention any names. It was multiple voices, okay? It wasn't just one. And he says to me, what the heck is this fruit? I want chocolate chips. <laughs> I deserve even sweeter. And, and then the amazing thing was my own heart was exposed, right? Because I went off, not out here, but in here. Because I arrived thinking that I deserved appreciation, a little bit of gratitude, maybe some hugs from the daughter. I had all these dreams of what I deserved when I came. It's just human nature to interact, feeling that you kind of deserve something. And we do that with God. We bring an attitude of deserving. Something else here. This guy also brings an attitude of earning. An attitude of earning can be seen. Think about how he starts this. He says, what must I do? Eternal life's out there. What can I do to get it? That's how he starts the conversation. Jesus goes to commandments. Now, Jesus is going to the commandments not to give him a design checklist. He's going to do it to expose the guy's heart. And he starts with the second half of the Ten Commandments, the second table which are all about loving your neighbor, right? So Jesus is like, okay, how are you with murder, with your stealing? How's that going? Adultery, honoring your father and mother. And the guy responds, I've kept all these from my youth, man. I've got an A plus in morality. If there's one more thing I need to do, Jesus, just give it to me and I'll do that one too. And then I'll earn eternal life. See his perspective there? But Jesus still said, no, 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 no. There's something you lack. It's because it's not about earning anyway. There's something you're still not getting. And then thirdly, this guy brings deserving, earning to the conversation. Jesus brings the idea of surrendering, right? He turns the conversation. The one thing this man lacks is not something necessarily for him to do. He lacks the kingdom. He lacks being ruled by a Lord God and surrendering himself to that Lord. That's why Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. The letting go there. You see it? The letting go of something. And then he says, that's not all, come and follow me. That's a chasing after. You see, surrendering to Jesus is one part letting go and one part going after something. Jesus says it. Let go of your possessions. Come and follow me. Follow hard after me. You asked about eternal life. Drop all your stuff, man. Enroll in the university of Jesus. That's how you get eternal life. I'll give it to you. It won't be gained. How does the guy react to that news? Scripture says he becomes very... Very sad. Why? For he was extremely rich. Had a lot of stuff to let go, right? A lot of good stuff, I'm sure. 
Another gospel says he turns and he, he walks away at this point. He doesn't know how to surrender. He doesn't want to let go and also pursue something else. It was back in 1865, about 2 o'clock on April 9th, when General Robert E. Lee walks into a courthouse, a house serving in that, Appotomatic's here, here, courthouse in Virginia, and General Grant is there. Lee, resplendent in his fancy uniform, cool sword, Grant in a muddy coat of a soldier. Lee, of course, is in this house to surrender the armies of the Confederacy to General Grant. And as surrenders go, this one's a weird one, because usually when an army conquers army, First off, the generals don't know each other, but in the Civil War, they all knew each other, so this was a little weird. But beyond that, the losing army has to do what? They have to lay down everything, right? Take your uniforms off. We'll take your horses. We'll take your weapons. We might even take your money because we won the war and you lost the war. But Grant does it different. He throws a curveball and he says to Lee, I tell you what, have all your men and all of your officers Keep your horses, and you take those horses, go back to your families, till the land, work the farm so that you can survive through the winter and will pursue joining this union back together. And Robert E. Lee said famously later, this had the best possible effect on all the men. It did much toward conciliating our people. Lee understood that surrender wasn't just giving up something. It's also pursuing something. And that's what Jesus was saying. Surrender to Jesus is letting go of everything lesser than God and pursuing the only thing that's worth it. It's Jesus. It's what he's telling this guy. It's what he's telling us today afresh. Notice the rich ruler doesn't either of these. Doesn't want to let go. He doesn't want to pursue He's just sad. And this sadness points Jesus to say this. Oh, how difficult is it for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Then he doubles down famously, right? Verse 25 is a famous saying. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And everybody was listening to that. To their credit, they seemed to get it. They got the fact that camel's a big animal. Never going to go through that little hole. And they said, well, wait a minute. If that's what salvation is like, who can be saved? That's their question in the text. Well, who can be saved? And for the record, in the Jewish society, just like in ours today, they often associated the rich with being blessed by God. They had their own health and wealth kind of gospel to deal with there. And they were thinking, Here's a guy with a lot of money. Surely God loves him because God's given him that stuff, right? And if he can't work his way into heaven somehow, what hope is there for all of us? So you see this despair, and that's when Jesus throws down the real fulcrum of the text when he says, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. We see the rich young ruler here, his problem is shared by every one of us. He comes to God thinking he's more righteous 
than he is. Thereby, he deserves something from God. He feels he can merit his way through heaven's gates. And he's incapable of surrendering himself to Jesus Christ. And it's all because he cannot see the worth of God. He'll never understand Psalm 1611. Remember that? It says the eternal pleasures are at the right hand of God. He can't see it. He's blinded. Blinded by his own sin. The only pleasures he sees are his stuff. He's always going to choose that because he's blind to everything else. And Jesus wasn't just picking on the rich here. He wasn't just singling him out. Certainly, the wealthy struggle with this. But really, he's talking broadly to every one of you. This guy is just one type of person that is going to struggle to see the glory of God because you can't naturally do it. The Apostle Paul speaks on this. Later in Romans 8, 7, Apostle Paul says, the mind of the flesh doesn't submit to the law of God. Why? It, it cannot. It can't do it, says Paul. 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says it differently. He says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Get that language of cannot. This guy is hopeless. He cannot be saved because he can't understand the worth of the eternal God. It's impossible for him to see it. But it is possible with God. He must give us this clear vision of the worth of God. It cannot be gained. And this is a good spot in the text. Pull back. Ask yourself some questions. Remember, God brought you here. Not for the sake of the rich ruler. He brought you here for the sake of you and your soul and your life and your children and your spouse. Ask yourself some questions here. Don't waste this time. First, you know, at what points in your life, deep down in the depths of you, do you really think you deserve something from God? Do you really think you deserve something? You overestimate, overestimate your own goodness and you think, hey, you know what? I deserve this from God. Think about your marriage, maybe. Maybe in your marriage, you're having a great day, man. You wake up, hug your spouse, get up, you go to work. You're kicking on all cylinders. You're loving people at work. You're praying. Nice to everybody. You're trusting God. You come home. You wave at your neighbor. You hug your kids. You tell them you love them. They're great kids. And you meet your spouse, and it's, nah. Things come out. They say something hurtful. Are you tempted to say, hey, oh, oh God, I don't deserve this. I, I've already lived for you all day long. This happened. How could you? Look at me. How could you? You know, where in your life are you tempted to do this? God is not your genie meant to give you what you think you deserve based on your own righteousness. Secondly, are you tempted to think you can earn something from God? Where are you tempted to think in your life that you can earn something? Are you banking on your morality as you relate to God? I've had a persistent quiet time. Bible reading plan, I'm checking up all the boxes. I called Mama this week. 
whatever it is that you would bank on. I didn't snap at that annoying neighbor. Somebody needs to snap at that guy. But I didn't. I turned the other cheek. I've earned something from God. Maybe I've earned a stress-free tomorrow. Maybe I've earned healthy children. Look how I've lived. I've worshipped you. I've earned healthy children, healthy parents. Maybe I've earned the right to stand justified before God. Where do you think you've earned something before God? And finally, what have you yet to surrender? What have you yet to surrender to your God? Do you have material possessions that you could never give up? Do you cherish too much? What do you think of in your free time? I don't think at all. I'll go to my phone. Ah, but your mind goes somewhere in your free time. What consumes you when you have some downtime? Look at that thing. Would God have you surrender something? And this is where Luke, in the text, turns the page a little bit. He kind of leaves us wondering. The question is hanging in the air. Okay, we know eternal life is given, not gained. Jesus says it's impossible, but it is possible for God. So how is God going to work it out? And this is where Luke drops story number two here. It's a simple story of Jesus talking. You can pick it up in verse 31. And the idea is, Jesus is going to show us that eternal life is not through the deeds of man, but eternal life is through the Son alone. Through the Son alone. Look at the next story that Luke goes to, verse 31. And Jesus is taking the twelve, and he says to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they didn't understand any of this stuff. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was being said. All right, this is the third time Luke has brought up this idea of Jesus foretelling his death, but this is the first time that we've given so many details. Look at the details we were given about the death of Jesus. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. The Gentiles will be the agents of death. It's going to be an incredibly excruciating, humiliating, painful death. And on the third day, Jesus will rise again. And then in verse 31, Jesus says a lot with one little sentence. Look what he says. He says, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Okay, that's key. Who's the Son of Man? Well, it's weird because Jesus is talking in third person. We don't usually do that, but he did here. The Son of Man is himself. If you look at all the things that Jesus calls himself, Son of Man is at the top of the list. And it's almost a sneaky way to say that he is the Messiah. He is the one in whom God will fulfill all of his promises. He is the central character to the story. I heard an interview this week on the interweb. I watched this video and uh, it was something about Netflix. And it said Netflix now has out one of its most popular 
shows ever. It's called Stranger Things. I don't know if you've seen it, but the show is now in its second uh, second season. And so, and the creator, his name is Ross Duffer, who created this wildly popular show. Uh, he admitted something, and what he said was, uh, "I knew uh, I had this central character. Her name is L, and a lot goes on around this one character." And he said, "You know what? At the end of the first season, we were just going to kill this character off." And she would save the day and it would be done with it. And then if we had a second season, if people liked it, we would start something new. Well, what happened was they ended the first season, killed this girl off. Everybody loved her and they figured out she's actually central to the storyline. So they had to make up a way to bring her back in because she was so crucial to the storyline. And they dropped her back into season two in a weird kind of way, but it worked. Jesus... Jesus is the central character of the Bible storyline. He's saying, I'm the son of man, and all that was promised by the prophets is going to be fulfilled in me, in my death and resurrection. Well, you might ask, well, what did the prophets say the son of man would do? If we look back at the prophets, if you looked in Daniel, he introduces this son of man guy, And he's a heavenly figure, and he's going to bring with him a kingdom that is forever. It's not going to end. Forever life. In that kingdom, there will be eternal life. That's what the Son of Man does. So Jesus is saying here, through my death and resurrection, I will usher in the eternal living kingdom. Right? He's circling back to the rich ruler's question. Rich ruler said, how can I get eternal life? Jesus says, well, the Son of Man is here and he's dying. He will rise again. That's where eternal life is located. For only Jesus dies the sacrificial atoning death for his people. Only Jesus was worthy both to be the high priest and the offering to offer himself up for the salvation of God's elect. Only Jesus bore the punishment for God's people. Only Jesus could create what fell in Eden and usher in a new creation. Eternal life is found in Jesus alone. How does it work? Well, Jesus, it's wrapped up in the concept that Jesus, unlike every one of us, is completely righteous. He's completely good. He's completely holy. And so in his death, He offers his holy self up in place of our damaged, broken selves. So that when God looks at us, he'll actually credit Jesus' goodness, his righteousness, his holiness to us. Right? That's called imputed righteousness. Big fancy word. It just means that we, upon taking faith in Jesus and repent, we receive the righteousness of Christ as if We were righteous. And once that happens, we are able to be united to God, filled with His Spirit, and the Spirit wakes us up. The Spirit keeps us alive forever. That's how eternal life is given and not gained. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, we attain his right standing before God. We no longer earn death. Life is earned for us eternally. So thankful it works that way. You know, I saw um, the new Star Wars movie is out. Uh, the Last Jedi, right? I go there. Here's a spoiler. You can you can see this from the previews. Luke Skywalker's got some issues, okay? Luke Skywalker is working through the failures of his people. As I was watching this, no spoilers, I thought back to the first Star Wars movie. And there's an iconic scene in there with Luke Skywalker. And even though he's a good guy, he finds himself in possession of some outlaw robots, right? And he has to go through a police check of sorts where stormtroopers are stopping all the cars that pass through and they're looking for these outlaw robots. And so Luke is like, how am I going to get through this? And they pull up to the traffic check and an amazing scene happens. His buddy, his mentor, Obi-Wan, is sitting there beside him and he does this freaky Jedi mind trick. And he turns the minds of the stormtrooper, right? He says, like, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Move along. And the stormtrooper just buy it. They're like, oh, these aren't the droids we want. And they get to pass through. That is not how standing before God is going to work, okay? As an outlaw, as a renegade, as a rebel... There'll be no Jedi merit tricks for God. He will not ignore the fact that you are an outlaw, that you are a rebel. But he does give passage to all of those who hope in Jesus. Because instead of having a cloudy mind and somehow allowing you to pass without wrath, God will see gleaming in front of him the righteousness of Jesus. And he will say, okay, yes, come, come into me because Jesus is perfect and now you are counted perfect. The only way we will be accepted before God and live eternally is because Jesus' righteousness has been applied to us. And this should comfort you. On the topic of death, there will be a day, I hope it's a long, I hope it's a thousand years from now, but I don't believe it, that there will be a day when every one of us faces death intimately. You might be on the hospital bed. Somebody's going to come see you. Might be a pastor. And in that moment, I'll pray to God and I won't be hoping on all the good stuff you did. I'm going to be hoping in the righteousness of Jesus. God will let this person live forever because what Jesus has done and who he is, we have forever life. Remember what a problem is. Remember the rich ruler. He saw his treasure as worth more than God. So in order to see God, our eyes need to be opened by the Spirit given by Christ based on his cross work so that we can see 
the worth, the infinite worth of God in Jesus Christ. This is why in Acts 26, 18, Jesus is going to send Saul with the word and the spirit. He says to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Eternal life is given by Christ alone. It's not gained. Now, thankfully, after writing all of this, Luke still has on his mind, apparently, they may have missed that. Because in 35, he's going to give you a living picture of all that he said. He knows how your mind works. You like stories. And so he gives you another story to illustrate what Jesus has just said. And as we read it, I don't want you to miss it. So look for these two things. As we read the rest of the text, eternal life is given, not gained, and eternal life is through the Son alone. He's going to take a story now, tell it, that illustrates it. Verse 35 is when he starts the story. As Jesus came near Jericho, a blind man was standing by the roadside, begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired about what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So verse 38, the blind man cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. All those who were in front of him rebuked him. Like, be quiet, telling him to be silent. But he keeps going, saying, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops, and he commands the guy to come here. Bring that guy to me. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? So the guy says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovers his sight and he followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. So what are we meant to see when we read this story? First, eternal life is given. It's not gained. Compare this guy in this story. Who is he? He's not just blind, but he's a beggar. Compare him to the rich ruler. Who wasn't just a ruler, he was a rich one. They're complete opposites. This guy brings nothing to the table, right? He's blind, he's broke, he's begging. Though the man is poor, the metaphor here is very rich. The blind man is you. You bring nothing to the table. This isn't some synergy that's going on. God reaches out to you and does all of the work of salvation. Twice the blind man calls out here. Both times he asks for what? Mercy, right? Mercy is the word you use when you know you deserve something bad, but you want something good. Mercy, says to Jesus, mercy. This man knows he deserves nothing. And it's shown here. If this man is ever going to see a beautiful sunset or the light in his wife's eyes, 
or gaze upon an open meadow, it's going to have to be given to him. He's not going to gain it. Notice here, someone told me this in the first service, after the service, not during the service. <laughs> I was talking with them, and they said, you know, it's beautiful here because the blind man is coming to God with open hands. The rich man's grabbing onto all of his stuff. And the way life works is sometimes, many times, circumstances are going to force your hands open even if you don't open them yourself. And you will find yourself bare before God. And scriptures would say to you, that's exactly where he wants you to be. Your impulse, when times are tough, is going to be, grab them, grab something. God's like, no, surrender it. Open it. Ask for mercy during those times. Those are the times on the journey to life eternal. One other thing. Eternal life here in this little story about a blind man. It's clear eternal life comes through the sun alone. I love the picture in my mind. It's dusty road into Jericho. It's crowded. There's lots of people going. There's all shapes of people. And over to the right there, there's the blind beggar. He's doing his thing. He's always here. He's in his spot. He's holding out a towel. Everybody walks by, asking everybody for some money. The normal part of society. And all of a sudden, he hears a ruckus. Over the years, he's learned to trust his ears. His eyes don't work, but he's got pretty good hearing. And he hears something, and he grabs somebody. He says, what is that? What's that noise? The guy's like, it's Jesus, man. Jesus from Nazareth is coming. I could see this guy hop up, stumble forward. And he calls out. Who does he call out to? Calls out to the sun. Twice the text says, Son! Son! Son of David. He knows a great king must come from David. He sees Jesus as that great king. He calls out to no one else. Only Jesus. And in a moment, Jesus turns, speaks a lifetime of darkness away as this blindness dissolves. Jesus commends his faith. That's another way of saying this whole situation is wrapped up in your surrender. Your faith, your surrender, and the glory of Jesus has made him well. That's a picture of your eternal life. And don't miss the reaction in the story. Verse 43 is beautiful. The miraculous is concluded by the worship of God in Jesus Christ. Lots of people meet Jesus in the Bible. Many of them don't go away glorifying God. But this guy who's surrendered, who's been given eternal life, responds with glorifying God. Your surrender will lead to your joy, which will prompt your glorifying. I know it's counterintuitive. You think that surrender is going to lead to you being beaten down. But it's the opposite. The more you surrender of yourself, the more you will see the glory of God. What if the rich man, what if the rich man would have figured out a way to somehow pay for eternal life? He'd have been the first guy to ever do it, right? 
Everybody remembered that guy's name forever. They would have gloried in that guy. Hey, he figured out the way to get eternal life. Just got to pay this much. That's not how it happens. Eternal life is only through Jesus, so he gets the glory. God gets the glory, and everybody praises him. If you're thinking, man, this New Year's been dry. I've been having a hard time worship. Hard, hard time praising God. There's no magic formula, but it could be that your lack of surrender and seeing your relationship with Christ, not as one of earning, not as one of deserving, but as one of surrendering, that could actually facilitate a life of worship and opening up of your heart. This is Luke 101, foundational stuff here. Now let's put it in this week. This week, today, I want you to know that eternal life is given, not gained. What might that mean to you this week? Well, I'll tell you this. If you didn't earn something, you're not going to be able to botch it up. Okay? You will mess up this week. But you won't mess up eternal life if it's been given by God. Right? You might fail in your marriage. Your waffle making. Your parenting your family relationships. But God will not stamp reject on you. Okay? You weren't grade A to begin with. He won't reject you because he's seen Jesus when you fail. That frees you up to be very open about your failures, right? God's not condemning you. No matter what other people says, you can confess your sin and failures because you can trust eternal life has been given And it comes through Christ alone. If you're tempted to find your hope in another person, a political theory, something else, you need to know eternal life comes through Jesus Christ alone and you need to share it. Okay? You don't have to have a pulpit. In fact, that would be awkward. But at work, in your neighborhood, people aren't believing Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life. They're believing something else. Most of them, some type of work-based system is getting them eternal life. And they're wrong. Doomsday wrong. You have the good news. You can glory in the fact, in your conversations, not in an awkward way, in a very natural way, eternal life is only through Jesus, the Son. Hence the joy will begin to build up as you share it. We're going to pray, and we're going to go now towards the Lord's Supper. And this is your time. This is how we do the Lord's Supper here if you're a guest. Tables up front, one in the back. If you're following Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, we invite you to take a moment now, reflect on His goodness, His deliverance of you. His death where he poured himself out to bear the wrath of God so that you don't have to reflect on that. When you're ready, come forward, take the elements, take them back, receive the supper at your own pace here. Do know, if you're a guest, this is a a Jesus meal. If you don't identify as a follower of Jesus, we're so glad you're here. We just ask that you watch what's going on. Watch us. God might speak to you. We're going to take the supper here.
And I pray, I pray this will be a time of surrendering for you. Let's pray. Oh God, we receive now your word with all of its pricks, piercings, and hope. Help us, God, to respond with surrender. Let us call out only to the Son of David. Have mercy. Have mercy. I've failed. I messed up my parenting. Have mercy. My marriage is a wreck. Have mercy. I'm immoral. Have mercy. I lied. Have mercy, Son of David. Oh, Father, by the work of Christ, apply his righteousness to us by your Spirit. Grant us a clear vision of the glory of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.